You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to the history of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that, over time, have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. Episode 17, The Bold and the Looter's Rule. Philip the Bold, Duke of Burgundy, kicked off a dynasty that would forever change the Low Countries. After his marriage to Margaret of Flanders, in 1369, Philip would prove himself to be a formidable opponent to anyone playing the game of politics and power in Western Europe. He generally did this by using diplomacy instead of the sword. Despite his adventurous and super trendy epithet suggesting otherwise, he was more willing to boldly give lavish gifts of wine and expensive ornaments in order to charm the pants of anyone he was trying to manipulate rather than raising an army and marching boldly forth. By showing magnanimity in victory after quelling an uprising in Ghent in the 1380s, by the end of the 14th century, Philip the Bold was able to bring a modicum of stability to rebellious Flanders, and to begin the process of centralizing power in the Low Countries under a single ruler, himself and his successors, the Dukes of Burgundy. Philip would create what would go down in history as the Burgundian Netherlands. As we have well covered in this series, for most of the 14th century, Flanders had been racked by immense conflict and violence, something which defined the rule of every count of Flanders who had to deal with it. During his rule, Louis of Marley, the current count of Flanders, Nevers and Rethel, had managed to wrestle some control back from the big Flemish cities, and to better balance his natural proclivity towards the French throne with the urban demands in Flemish cities for open trade with England. It took over 20 years for Louis to bring Flanders to heel. His long-term tactics were to get key people into key positions in the big Flemish towns and to set the foundations for a more centralized administrative structure. By coupling this with a more respectful approach to the commercial interests of towns, and of the people who ran them, by the time of his daughter's um, extravagant wedding in Ghent to Philip the Bold in 1369, Louis largely managed to pacify the influential power brokers in those towns and to temper the immense instability that had been so common across Flanders for so long. The big exception to this was the city of Ghent which never strayed too far from defying the Count and in which the embers of rebellion consistently smoldered. In regard to the power structures in big Flemish cities, it is worth reinforcing that each town had its own identity, no less in the makeup of the council and institutions that ran them. Ghent had been the main epicenter for many of the anti-comital rebellions during this century. There, the workers, and particularly the weavers and the fullers, 
held far more sway than their contemporaries in, for example, Bruges. In Bruges, the international commercial centre, the weavers had a less permanent presence in the city's governance, and there was a stronger urban patriciate who, very generally speaking, tended to be more steadfast in their loyalty to the Count. And so Bruges was less prone to rising in open revolt against him than Ghent was. But even despite the irascibility of Ghent and its constantly jostling factions, Louis in 1369 managed to forge a reasonable sense of stability. The pacification only lasted about a decade, but it was an important one for Louis's son-in-law, Philip the Bold. As we mentioned in episode 14, The Joys of Succession in Brabant, Philip was a younger son of the King of France, John II. After the previous Duke of Burgundy, Philip of Rouvre died without an heir in a horse-slash-pneumonia-related accident, John II gave the title to Philip in order to keep it all in his family. As the ruler of Burgundy, Philip presided over a magnificent grape region, but it was mainly agricultural and its largest city, Dijon, could not compare to the scope and complexities of the big Flemish cities, although it did make delicious mustard. In ruling such a relative backwater, Philip would not gain the experience necessary to deal with the kinds of social, economic and political matters which had torn Flanders asunder so frequently. In the years between 1369 and 79, Philip spent much of his time moving between his home province of Burgundy, the French court in Paris, and Flanders, carefully observing the dynamics of power and learning about the area which he would rule in the future, courtesy of his wife's inheritance. Philip would have been involved in discussions about and considered the options that his father-in-law, Louis of Marley, had opened to him in decisive matters and also would have seen what kind of consequences these might have led him to. In this coming crisis, Philip the Bold would learn much about Flanders indeed. Alongside his brother, the King of France, Philip worked on negotiating peace terms between the English and the French in the 1370s in an attempt to bring an end to the Hundred Years' War. Since it's known as the Hundred Years' War and not the 30-odd years of war, you can probably guess that he failed in these attempts. Despite this, though, he showed in his policies that he was already looking at Flanders' long-term interests by managing to broker terms that would endeavour to keep the vital English wool supply to Flanders flowing. In this period, Philip continued to build up and nurture his network and accrue respect from people around Europe, of whom he might later need a favour. He had an eye on a future in which his father-in-law, Louis of Marley, no longer lived, a future in which he would have primacy over Flanders. But he was astute enough to realise that he needed to garner enough popularity amongst the Flemish now, if he was going to rule them effectively later. He had to keep in mind that he was seen first and foremost as a French prince. As we have seen over and over again, Flemish counts could not afford to be seen as puppets of France, and this was a fact of which Philip seemed well aware. Rebellion and social uproar had by this time become a part of the fabric of Flanders, and in 1379 it reared its ugly head again. This time, the catalyst was the matter of the import of grain, and tensions arose initially between the two principal cities, Ghent and Bruges. Since at least 1357, 
Ghent had held the staple rights on all grain shipped north on the Scheldt and the Lee rivers, two of the most important trading conduits of the region. By these terms, they were given first dibs on any grain coming to dock in Ghent, meaning they had a stable grain supply, and they were also able to levy import duties. Bruges decided that they would circumvent this in the most lowlander manner imaginable by digging a canal that would bypass Ghent and connect it to the Lee further south. This way, grains from places like Hanau and Artois could be brought to Bruges without having to go through Ghent, and the bourgeois could avoid paying the staple dues. Louis of Malay gave his approval to this project, and this further added to the displeasure of the most easily displeasurable and cantankerous citizens of Ghent. The Bruges canal diggers fairly soon had to deal with being attacked by the Gentinars, often being set upon by a Ghent militia known as the White Caps, who would chase them off, kick at their stuff and shout, Take that! at their fleeing backsides. It turned out that Ghent, this insanely wealthy and populous cloth town where weavers and fullers fairly often and fairly violently took their disagreements with each other and everyone else to the streets, this city which had fostered the rebellious dictatorship of Jakob van Artefelde in the 1340s before eventually rebelling against him as well in the form of a murderous mob, it turns out that this volatile city had not cooled down quite as much as the Count and all the other cities of Flanders might have hoped. Louis of Malay had over 30 years of experience dealing with the uppity cities of his domain, but even he was still prone to making moves which would only incite them to greater levels of defiance. In retaliation to the Whitecaps of Ghent, which by the way sounds like the mortal enemy of the New Zealand cricket team putting pay to the canal diggers of Bruges, Louis of Malay had one of the militia leaders arrested. This was inflammatory because Ghent's city rights meant that town citizens could only be judged in the town. Angry citizens took their revenge for this infringement on their autonomy by killing one of the Count's representatives in the town, the bailiff. Suddenly, the violent cycle of Flemish friction was once more turning, and soon the rebellion had spread over to the other big cities as well, and most of the towns. The weavers and other workers in Bruges and Ypres and other places joined those in Ghent, and soon the nature of the conflict changed. Even though it might have started as a tussle between the two towns, now it became one in which the prince was once more up against the rich, powerful cities. At least now, Philip the Bold got to see exactly the type of social unrest the Flemish counts had to deal with, and how quickly it could spread across the territory. Allowing the cities to remain united and pushing for ever greater freedoms was obviously something which Louis could not just let happen. We must keep in mind, however, that even though we may finally be getting out of this awful 14th century, we are still at a point where rulers and cities, what with all the different groups within them, were still trying to best figure out the terms of their relationships, that had started with the granting of city rights in the 11th and 12th centuries. Dendermonde and Aldenarde, two towns in strategically powerful positions on the Skelt River, would be the key to whoever ended up with control over the river. Louis of Malay managed to keep those towns loyal to him, and the rebels put Aldenada to siege. When this proved fruitless, a commission was formed by the end of 1379, 
which included representatives from the three big cities, Ypres, Bruges, and Ghent, and which promptly banished several of the Count's men from those cities. They then chose to negotiate with the Count. These negotiations were conducted by Louis of Marley's wife, Margaret, and also by his son-in-law, Philip the Bold. In the resulting terms, Philip showed the soft hand by which his eventual tenure would become characterised. He granted amnesty to the rebels in return for a return to the situation prior to this outbreak. A peace was achieved, and loyalty to the Count resumed across Flanders, except in Ghent. In Ghent, the social divisions within its society, especially between weavers, fullers, and other workers, and then of course the urban patriciate as well, created a tension which would have felt familiar to anyone who had been around in the 1340s. The truce did not placate many people and groups in the town, and the friction that erupted between all of them was exactly the kind of hotbed from which the brutal dictatorship of Jakob von Artefelder had risen four decades previously. All this unrest in Ghent was worrisome for the rest of Flanders, who began to inch slowly away from the most troublesome of these troublesome cities. By 1380, the bourgeoisie and the lower nobility in Flanders were pretty much all pro-Louis and anti-Ghent. Most importantly for Louis, this was firmly still the case in Aldenada and Dendermonde, meaning he continued to control the Skeld. In early 1380, however, Murders that had happened during the initial violence of the rebellion were the cause of a re-sparking of violence and acts of revenge. This developed into a situation where a group of armed whitecaps from Ghent went and attacked Aldenada at night, burning down its walls and its gates and killing many of its nobles. They sent a message off to Louis, who was stationed in Lille, claiming that they had had a just cause of this because of the murders they were avenging. Stupidly, however, after 12 days of holding Aldenada, these rebels departed back to Ghent. This was stupid because, although nothing official was said, armed hostilities had now renewed, and they had just given up a tactical strongpoint for the conflict to come. Louis returned to Aldenada and had the walls rebuilt, he then responded by proceeding to bleed Ghent by blocking as many of its points of supply as possible. Although this would not show signs of success at first, it would prove effective in the long run, especially since he still had Aldenada and Dendermonde, and Ghent was really beginning to struggle to bring goods and particularly food into the town. The people of Ghent, led by the captains of the city, began to make looting expeditions, raiding the countryside for goods, whilst avoiding engaging the Count's forces. But looting was not going to cut it, especially once winter arrived. In truth, it became moot to loot. People would shoot at them en route, and a lack of fruit did not suit the brutes. Popularity began to swing against the Weaver's Guild, who dominated town governance, and in a risky move, the Council of Ghent decided that they would try to negotiate with the Count, sending a delegation to Bruges to do so. This was very risky, as weavers were not all that popular in Bruges at the moment, given their tight connection with the rebellion. And in the end, the negotiations don't appear to have ever happened. One source suggests that the Count's demands for a peace included he be given 500 hostages from Ghent, consisting of 300 weavers, 100 gatekeepers, 
and 100 others from small guilds. Instead of this happening, a kind of phony war simply continued. Until the army from Ghent began to move on Ypres in April 1380. In Ypres, the Weavers and the Fullers had united forces in a battle that took to the street against the coalition of the Porters and four other smaller craft guilds. During the battle, the four other craft guilds changed sides to the Weavers and Fullers, and they all took over the city. Nobles loyal to the Count were slaughtered, and when the Ghent army arrived, Ypres was already in control of people sympathetic to the rebellion. The rebels had momentum and so carried on with their army towards Bruges. When they came into the city, they were met by the Bruges militia who came screaming out onto the streets, shouting the patriotic cry with which Flemish workers and their count had fought off the French at the iconic Battle of the Golden Spurs all those years ago, Flanderen de Leo. The rebels from Ghent were brutally fought off and soon had to flee. They regrouped, however, and went in for a second attack. At this stage, Louis, looking at having lost Ypres and now with Bruges in immense threat, found the magnanimity to offer a fairly good truce, which Ghent ended up accepting. But unfortunately, the seeds of rebellion had now been sown once more in the minds and opinions of the weavers in Bruges, who perhaps have been rooting for the losing side in the battle for the city that had just happened. A secret meeting between the weavers took place on the 19th of August, in which it was decided whether or not they too would rise up in rebellion again against the Count. The meeting was discovered, however, and swiftly erupted in a clash in the town between the weavers and those loyal to the Count. This unrest in Bruges would take much of the Count's attention during the latter half of 1380, a period in which the weavers were cut down and suppressive policies were enforced immediately afterwards, such as banning weavers from carrying weapons, making all new members of the Weavers Guild in Bruges swear oaths of loyalty to the Count at pain of death, and also banning Weavers' participation in the City Council. With Bruges kept out of their grasp, around 3,000 of the rebels left, formed a fighting force for the rebellion, and went off to Ypres where their contemporaries were still in charge. The Count sent a large army to go and fight the rebels at Ypres, largely inflicting defeat and causing them to flee and once more head back to Ghent. Pretty soon, Ypres was basically just open to the Count to take it back, which was helped by the people in the city opening its gates for his arrival and with scores of them standing outside as he entered, they shouted how much they had wanted to remain loyal to him but had been forced into treason by those blighted weavers. The Count, now once more in charge of all of Flanders except Ghent, took hostages from Ypres, mainly weavers, and then left to go and organise a proper siege of that most troublesome city of his. A siege that would bring it to its knees once and for all. And this was the state of things as the war waged on into 1381. In May of that year, more expeditions were sent out of Ghent to find food supplies, one of these was ambushed on its way back by the Count's forces, in which their captains perished. In response to this, Gentinar forces went to Louis of Marley's birth castle in Marley, plundered it, and set it on fire. On their way back to Ghent, they captured 26 pro-Count prisoners of high rank and killed them, taking further revenge for the ambush and the death of their captain. 
The impact of the blockade, though, was ever-increasing and was now taking its toll on the people within the walls of Ghent. Without Ghent forces controlling Aldenada or Dendermonde, there was little hope of truly lifting the blockade. This situation into which Ghent had been led by the weavers would have steadily made more and more non-weaving people in Ghent more and more fed up with this war in which their city now stood alone against the Count and the rest of Flanders. What had begun from their demand to control a food source had led to them now having little food source, as the Count's strategy was taking greater long-term effect. But Louis, in spite of this, and for whatever reasons, could not sustain his forces in the field, in order to maintain a siege that did not leak. And then, towards the end of the year, he sent his forces home. It is unclear exactly why, but we turn again to our old mate, Jean Froissart, whose chronicles we have used before and who was actually rocking around at this time. And he said that Louis did this as Ghent was simply proving too strong and impenetrable for the resources available to the Count. However, notwithstanding Froissart's tendency to write the Counts of Flanders and other fiefdoms in a very positive light, this was at least a misconception and at most a massive strategic error, because it turns out that Ghent was actually pretty ripe for the taking at the time. The Chronicle of Olivier van Dixmaude informs us that at this point, Ghent's Dean of Porters returned to the city after a period outside the walls and saw how poorly maintained the defences had been in his absence. The person who had been left responsible for them, a guy called Liefen Valraven, the Dean of the Weavers, was beheaded for having shown such incompetency. Louis may not have known this, but it remains that there was no tactically sound reason for him to send his army home. Most likely is that his soldiers were fed up thinking about their families and about the arrival of autumn and the winter to come and the need for them to go and harvest their crops back at home or about the work that they missed in whatever craft or trade they plied. Whatever it was, Louis's forces just disapparated. So it was that despite the fact that Ghent's defences were considered so weak by their dean of porters that a bloke was beheaded for it, Louis was unable to take the city. The winter of 1381 and 82 really bit for the people of Ghent. Morale was extremely low and getting lower, probably at the same rate as the food supply. Many of the captains of the militia had by now been killed in their looting forays against the Count's forces. The leading man in the city, named Peter van den Bosch, decided to take a drastic and hugely symbolic measure to try to bring some sense of unity to this faltering rebellion. He convinced the Weavers Guild and the ruling council to get behind a man who, by the force of his very name, might well be able to lead Ghent to victory in this defiance against the tyranny of Louis of Mallet. This man was called Philip van Artefelder. We know this name because he was the son of that terrifying character, the brewer of Ghent, Jakob van Artefelde, to whom we dedicated episode 13 of this series, and who had reigned supreme over Flanders some 40 years earlier. Yep, terrible sequels. Bet you didn't know that was Dutch. The younger Artefelde was appointed as the Ruvard, swearing the oath on the 24th of January 1382 and his government consisted of representation from the same three groups from which the Count 
had demanded hostages. This shows that although there was a factionalization and a lot of division in Ghent, it seems that there were at least elements in each of the main groups that did support the rebellion. The appointment drew a direct connection to the glorious past of Flanders in a way that was designed to evoke regional and city pride. It reminded everyone that the rule of Jakob van Artefelde had literally forced the Count of Flanders out of the county and created an autonomy for Flanders that was upheld by pro-commerce and pro-English policies, which is what most people just wanted anyway. But the naming of Philip van Artefelde as the new head captain of Ghent also stirred up a cultural and patriotic passion linked with things like the Battle of the Golden Spurs and the rising power of craft guilds, which had so served to give workers and Flemings a collective and parochial pride. Well, that was the idea anyway. Unfortunately, Philip proved to be as big a psychopath as his father had been, according to Foissart anyway. The younger Artefelde began a witch hunt that took revenge on people complicit in his father's lynching, as well as against those who had tried to negotiate peace with the Count in the previous year. Believe it or not, 40 years after the last one, once again, a violent Artefelde dictatorship had arisen in Ghent. And speaking of unexpectedly arising again, here's an ad break. We'll see you on the other side. Welcome back to the show. As well as carrying out political assassinations, the captains in Ghent were charged by Artefelder with finding reliable food sources, as, as we mentioned, looting was proving simply untenable. Because as we mentioned, looting was no longer suiting. Ghent still had access to a couple of ports in Imperial Flanders, in an area known as the Fear Umbachten. Expeditions were sent into eastern Flanders and to Brabant and up to Holland and Zeeland to search for provisions both by water and overland. Via streams and tributaries, these would be able to be brought back to the city. One captain, Franz Ackermann, was fairly successful. He took an army east and received ample food in cities like Lofer, Brussels, and also in Liège. He made an approach to the Duchess of Brabant, Joanna, asking if she would help organize negotiations with Louis again, which she did, arranging a conference in Tournai in March. At these negotiations, however, Louis was implacable. He was fed up with all these broken pieces and rebellious intent, so he denied all the requests by Ghent's representatives and instead took measures to further isolate the city. His forces then managed to ambush and destroy the food caravan that Ackermann had managed to arrange as it was moving from Brabant to Ghent. This would have been devastating news, which would have made a bunch of expectant and hangry people in Ghent even hangrier. Looting the countryside and garnering meager provisions brought down streams and secretly stowed in carts rattling on the roads from the fear Umbachter were options that, by mid-1382, had basically run dry. Artefelde could see in Ghent the support for the uprising and his government was teetering. He needed food and he needed a military victory, so these things are what he set out to achieve. In an outrageous and bold move on the 3rd of May, 1382, Artefelder the Younger led a sortie to try to take the bourgeois by surprise while they were distracted, performing a religious celebration, the procession of the holy blood, a relic for which Bruges was and still is famous. 
the Count's forces and the Bruges militia were able to mobilize quickly enough to meet the oncoming Gentinars in battle at Bieferholzfeld, just south of Bruges' walls. Whether through hunger, desperation, or the inspired leadership of their murderous leader, Artefelder, Gent's troops managed to push the bourgeois back towards their own town, and a rout ensued. The Gentinars descended upon Bruges and cut down the fleeing bourgeois. Louis of Marley himself was even there, and when he was seen, Artefelder screamed at his men that they must not kill the Count, but imprison him, so that they could force peace terms on him. But these were hangry workers. A group of blacksmiths surrounded the Count, and he only just narrowly escaped being butchered. A Cartwright, who was still loyal to him, managed to hide him, and secretly escorted him to safety in Lille. Artefelder and the Gentinars were able to take over Bruges, which they would hold for six months. Immediately, the tables of power turned in the town again, as those who had punished the rebels the year before now came to suffer themselves. Certain prominent people and members of particular families were murdered, and anyone loyal to the Count was under threat of their lives. Small craft members and, of course, the weavers of Bruges were now put into positions of power, for example, as new city captains. Traditionally, in Bruges, which was dominated by the patricians, the small craft workers had held far less sway than their contemporaries in Ghent, who were at the forefront of this rebellion, and for whom this was about political power. For the bourgeois weavers and the other small craft workers, this struggle was a social and economic one, perhaps one that might grant them the freedoms that had been promised 80 years prior in the Battle of the Golden Spurs, but which as yet had not been delivered to them in their city. This distinction also goes to show how, even though we are talking about towns not very far from each other, and with similar economic foundations, there was still a difference in how their socio-political structures had developed over this whole crazy period of early urbanization and commerce. In Bruges, the now ruling rebels made clear to foreign merchants, and in particular to the Hanseatic merchants in the town, that they would remain unviolated in the continued pursuit of their business. The main concern for the rebels in Ghent was getting food into the city, but for those rebels now in charge of Bruges, keeping trade lines open and especially the important wool trade with England was top priority. Letters from Hanseatic merchants, written at the time, relay that they were not molested and were encouraged to keep business running. Louis of Marley therefore responded by waging economic war against Ghent and Bruges, withdrawing his guarantee of protection to foreign merchants and blocking all traffic heading to those two cities. But the rising power of these workers in Bruges, to go with what seemed like a successful rebellion so far, heartened other workers and anti-comital forces throughout Flanders. The rebellion continued to flare and spread once more throughout the county into cities, towns and villages. Pretty soon, all of Dutch-speaking Flanders had joined the side of Ghent and its rebels. All that is, except for Aldenar and Dendermonde. Crucially for Louis of Marley, as long as he could keep control of these two ports, then he was not going to be kicked out of the county the way that his father had been. It appears that Louis was well aware that the notion of a Flemish identity mattered now. His Frenchness, as well as that of his son-in-law Philip the Bold, would serve them poorly if they were to try to 
capture the hearts and minds of the Flemish and quash the rebellion. Therefore, he enlisted the help of a high-ranking Fleming, Van Hallewijn, and he ordered him to Aldenada to fortify it against the entreaties of the rebels. In this, Van Hallewijn succeeded. Aldenada remained loyal to Louis. Philip van Artefeld, hearing of this, called for the entirety of the Flemish workforce to lay Aldenada to siege, which many people promptly set about doing. Now having real momentum, Artefelder and or the rebel leaders then made a weird decision. Froissart tells us that a force of around 12,000 men was put together and made their way into France to sack small French villages and towns. This, if true, was also extremely stupid because, as always, the biggest threat to rebellions and pushes for autonomy in Flanders was that the French king would get involved and send or even personally lead his French army to invade. There were fewer greater guarantees of making this happen than by going and raiding French villages. The French king at this moment was a young boy and French rule was in the hands of a council that consisted of four French nobles. The most dominant of these, loosely speaking, was the king's uncle. And you're never going to believe who this was. That's right, our man, the son-in-law of Louis of Malle, and for all intents and purposes, his successor apparent in Flanders, Philip the Bold. At this juncture, Philip found himself in a position to determine the future of Flanders. All accounts of his character and intelligence suggest that he was aware of this. The action he took also suggests that he really knew what he was doing. Philip had by now been working with his father-in-law and his wife for over a decade, learning about the complexities of how Flanders ran, seeing how Louis of Malle went about trying to centralize power and manage the constant struggles of social and economic balance and political power between himself, the towns, the workers, all the while factoring in the demands of the English and the Hanseatic trade connections and the suzerainty of the French king on top of it all. Now Philip had seen what happened when a crisis hit, and he could show what, if anything, he had learned from seeing and being a part of how his father-in-law had dealt with it thus far. Whether the French landed a force in Flanders was essentially his decision, as was the manner in which he took it. Perhaps he could do it in a way that brought Flanders well and truly back under full French control, much as had been attempted earlier in the century. This could have spelled the end of over a century of Flanders maintaining its autonomy. Just as similarly though, any French intervention could also lead to another battle of the Golden Spurs, wherein the Flemish workers prevailed against French knights. If this happened, how would Philip hold on to any decent reputation that remained to him afterwards? He would be humiliated. Philip made a smart move. He made noises in the French court about the need for French intervention so as to bring Flanders more under French rule. But then he got his father-in-law to actually request the French troops directly from the king, his nephew. By not requesting them himself, Philip kept himself in a position that could be seen as respectful of the autonomy of Flanders and not that he was just acting as a power-hungry French prince. Meanwhile, the siege of Aldenada continued, and the Gentinar rebels, aware of the looming threat of French invasion, increased their delegations to England, who they were trying, as always, 
to get to come in and stand up for them. When those in the French court heard tales of this, the clamour for an intervention went up a notch. The French army invaded in November 1382 and were led by the king himself, as well as the Dukes of Burgundy, Anjou, Bourbon and Berry, who were the four blokes actually running France. The united will of the Flemish in rebellion turned out not to be as strong as their fear of this force, and people began to quickly turn against the weavers and other rebellious workers who had been the main provocateurs in the whole rebellion. As word spread throughout the county, morale for defiance broke down. Artefelder was going to have a lot of work in front of him, convincing people to stay strong. He gathered all his forces, and he made his way to Courtrike and Rosebeek, nearby where the famous Battle of the Golden Spurs had taken place almost exactly 80 years previously. Once more, Flemish workers were going to fight French knights. And this happened on the 27th of November. The forces met, and the French absolutely destroyed the Flemish rebels. Artefelder himself was killed. It was a complete rout. See, I told you this was a terrible sequel. Following the battle, a panic hit Bruges. Many people who were uncertain whether they would now be included in the reckoning of the rebels packed up their stuff and fled, either to Ghent or to Holland and Zeeland. A man called Christoffels van Schoten appeared in Bruges' main market square, escorted by members of the clergy, holding aloft their big crosses and their lit torches, and people began to gather around them. And pretty soon the cry went out, Flanderen de Leu, Flanders the Lion. Bruges was well and truly back in the Count's hands. When the punishment came for the rebellion in Bruges, records tell us that 281 people there had their things confiscated. 45 of them were weavers, the largest single group targeted for reprisals. The regime that was installed in the city by the Count afterwards would last for nearly 25 years, and many of their policies would specifically be aimed to prevent the weavers or their ilk ever getting power there again. Word of the victory by the Count's forces and his allies, the French, spread like wildfire. Pretty quickly across Flanders, towns and villages shook off their association with the rebels and began to turn in those who they thought could take the blame. It turns out that the support for the rebellion in the rest of Flanders was based more on the fear of Ghent and what it had done to Bruges, for example, rather than the social, economic, and political aims of the rebellion itself. So now Ghent stood alone. Its gates were closed and the city was once more surrounded. Thus, it would remain for another two and a bit years. In 1384, the rebel city would get a small bit of satisfaction, no doubt, when the death of Louis of Marley occurred. The old Flemish count, who during the tumult of the 14th century had done perhaps better than any other in trying to balance this petroleum-doused snake pit that was Flanders, left this responsibility to his daughter Margaret. Louis of Marley had been the last male Dampier ruler of Flanders, the line of Flemish counts that had stemmed from Guy of Dampier, who all those years ago had taken action against the French king to instill a rebellious sense of identity into his Flemish people, now ended with a count whose struggle in the end, relied on the French crown to put down Flemish rebellion. Even though Margaret was now the Countess, and it is tragic how little information there is about what role she played in the administration of her territories, 
Her husband was now the Count, and so he gets significantly more of history's attention than she does. With the death of Louis of Malle, all of a sudden the man who was the de facto ruler of France, being that he dominated the Regency Council in France, also became the de facto ruler of most of the southern lowlands. Philip the Bold took control of this situation in an extremely intelligent and political fashion, and he aptly managed to meet the demands of ruling Flanders with the demands of the French court, all the while maintaining rule in his own wine-producing duchy of Burgundy. In the Low Countries, he showed what he had learned from his father-in-law and from the whole chaos of the Ghent War, which he now had to bring to an end. In 1385, he negotiated a peace with Ghent, called the Peace of Tournai, in which Ghent kept its city privileges and the rebels received amnesty. If we compare this to Louis of Malle's demands of 500 hostages at the start of the war, we see the lessons of leniency being displayed by the new Flemish count. In return for this, the rebels in Ghent had to suspend any treaty with the King of England and renew their loyalty to the French crown. But this is what set Philip apart from all those other counts before him. Philip showed better political tact. The ordered suspension of treaties with England was more a concession to the pride of the French king than a firm policy that was going to be enforced. In 1387, Philip turned a blind eye to Flemish merchants who made their own private deals with English traders. Not Flemish himself, Philip the Bold still seemed to understand better than any Flemish ruler before him where his bread was actually buttered when it came to the territory. Now Philip was positioned to further expand his power. He had been schooled in the pitfalls of ruling Flanders and passed the test, and through other methods he would begin to add more territories to his domain. The rebellious nature of the Flemish cities would not disappear and future Dukes of Burgundy would have to deal with them again, but while the 14th century would be remembered for its chaos and terror, the 15th century would be remembered for growth, wealth, and relative stability. And why was that? Because of how Philip would set up his system of governance. But that, dear listeners, is going to have to wait for another episode. Before we finish up, it is time to send out some massive thank yous to all our new best friends from around the world who have pledged money to us on Patreon. Patreon is a subscription service where you can support our show by giving us cold hard cash. For just a buck a show, you get to listen to ad-free versions of our podcast, which is a really good deal if you ask us, and helps us out immensely. So go to patreon.com slash history of the Netherlands. Why are you saying Netherlands the whole time? Netherlands. Patreon.com slash history of the Netherlands. So, shoutouts go to... and. In order of the hardest names to read, Samuel Dalsin de Annuncia Chow. I have trouble Annuncia Chow in your name, mate, but thanks nonetheless, Sambo. Much easier name. You're a champ. Carol Agel, or Aggers to her mates, wrote into us and amazingly has pledged five bucks an episode. You all know what that means. We are going to say her name five times Carol Agel. Carol Agel. Carol Agle. Carol Agle. Carol Agle. Thank you so much, Aggers. We really, really appreciate it. And also a big thanks to Nicholas E. Tischler, or as we call him, Boomtish, 
We can always rely on him to lay down the beats and the bucks. Jeremy Hearinger is a Pisces. He has Frisian heritage. He eats herring for Christmas and has a last name that looks like the word herring. So that's why we call him Gibbo. Cheers, Gibbo. And finally, Harry Berkowitz and his class, collectively known as the Berserkers from Ohio in the United States, have written to us to say that they are studying the history of liberalism in the Netherlands and have been listening to our show in order to prepare for a trip to our beloved little swamp. We are super excited to be sharing a passion for things like medieval wool manufacturing with 15 students from the other side of the world and look forward to being in touch with them further. Thank you, berserkers. Go you good things. So, dunk Yulivel, and until next time, doei. This has been a production by Republic of Amsterdam Radio. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.